A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Radio Motherboard is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You can support this podcast by going to casper.com and using code VICE for $50 off of any mattress. Welcome back to Radio Motherboard. I'm staff writer Jason Kebler, and I'm joined today by our managing editor, Adrian Jeffries. Hello. And our supervising producer, Chris O'Coin. Hey. And today we're going to be talking about Perfect Worlds, which is our simulations theme week that we're doing this week. So what is a perfect world, Adrian? So we left this pretty open to interpretation. Uh, The tagline at the end of the Perfect Worlds story says, Perfect Worlds is about simulations, imitations, and models. So we talked about uh, like a scientist who was trying to simulate altruism in an equation and argue that there is no such thing as real selfless kindness it's all self-interest and that drove him crazy read the story um we also wrote about like space junk simulation uh like how space junk travels through space um there's also things like martian um, martian landing simulations and SimCity and The Sims and sort of very in-your-face sort of simulations that you're probably familiar with, but that we have looked for a different angle or uh, just kind of taken a deep dive on. Yeah, and lots of virtual reality. And I was talking to my dad about this theme week, and he told me to read a book, a sci-fi book that was like his favorite when he was like 12, and I kind of wanted to spoil it right now. Wait, what book is it? It's called Simulacron 3. Ooh. Have you heard of it? No, but I have a favorite simulation book that I'll talk about in a moment. Okay. Similar. Should I not spoil this book? It's basically, it's about um, a researcher. The book opens, his mentor has died suddenly, mysteriously. And he's now taking over this company that's building this crazy simulated world and the reason they're building it is for opinion polling because the real world has been taken over by corporations that are constantly polling people for their opinion and they got some legislation passed so you always have to answer these pollsters like whenever they come to disturb you at any hour um, and like try their samples of new chocolate or whatever and tell them what you think. So they're building this simulator to replace that industry with this simulated world and all of the fake people in the simulated world are programmed with full personalities and full AI So they'll just inject one of these products and survey all 10,000 of them at once. And then things get out of hand. Yeah. This sounds kind of like the Stepford Wives, but maybe I am just not following. Maybe not. Um, That sounds awesome, and I'm definitely going to read it. So I'm glad. I don't think you spoiled it per se, right? No, I didn't spoil it. Okay. Because that sounds like the kind of book that I would enjoy very much. Um, Similar book. And my favorite Philip K. Dick novel that I've read, and I haven't read all of them, and I haven't read most of the classics, but um, Time Out of Joint is uh, a very, not not totally similar, but it's like a great simulation narrative about this guy who compulsively solves a puzzle every day mm-hmm. and then starts to notice certain things about the world around him and shit gets crazy. And I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, I think Philip K. Dick is like many times weirder than the author of this book, but it was a good book. Philip K. Dick, very into simulations. 
Why are we so into simulations? Why do we like them? It's That's a it's really heavy question. <laughs> it's because we don't have to like, there's nothing at risk, right? I mean, I played fantasy baseball like all growing up and played all these like video games where you can just like create your entire like own world and you think that you're better than the real people who are doing it because there's nothing at stake and you can try things thousands and thousands of times whereas in real life you basically like get one chance to screw up and if you screw up you can't undo it right we had an interesting story today um where this guy explored the question of why we have so many video games that are just like work like there's even video games that don't seem like work kind of still are work um and in a lot of games you have like a job like even if it's like treasure hunter or like a sweet job it's like a job and then some games are just like you're a truck driver like euro truck simulator 2 or whatever it's called yeah, I mean, there's that. There's like Sim Lemonade Stand. There's yeah. virtual farming from, uh, or sorry, yard work simulator from The Simpsons, which right. is the picture Legend. for that one. Perfect. Yeah, and there's like business sims where you're like building some kind of business. Anyway, this writer's point was that these games are like work, but they're they're like this perfect kind of work where you, it's very goal oriented. You know exactly what you have to do. You're in total control. And you can feel this real sense of accomplishment, whereas work in real life is infinitely more frustrating and sucky. Even if you screw up in something like Railroad Tycoon, uh, you basically still have like an awesome theme park with tons of roller coasters and tons of people there. And even if you're like bad at a video game, you're still probably better off than most people are in their day to day lives. So I think maybe that has something to do with it as well escapism always escapism yeah always escapism control the illusion of control i was thinking so in a different a different way uh a different approach to simulations but um books like uh what simulacron three simulacron three and uh time out of joint and then movies like the matrix of course or truman show or the most underrated sci-fi film at least to me ever uh dark city that like these worlds where people are wake up one day and they realize that like the world is not what it seems and that it's the simulation that's been created especially for them i think the viewer kind of sees themselves as like a foil like for the the main character and everybody wants to be special and then they you figure out that the world is a simulation and holy shit everything depends on you like literally every one of those movies has that same thing going on um, I, I always thought that's why they were special for the same reason that conspiracies are so popular because conspiracies allow people to be like, there's something going on behind the scenes that's trying to fool me and the world isn't just like total chaos and nonsense, which it probably is. Right? <laughs> like Great. there's logic to the universe, mm-hmm. even if it's like Malevolent. a fake logic that holds right. you in its grip. And I think the big question that we've kind of been hinting out and we've definitely done a couple stories about it this week is what is our own reality and what is existence and that's kind of what the meat of this podcast is going to be about um we're going to talk to nick bostrom who is a university of oxford philosopher he's very into the study of super intelligent artificial intelligence he's kind of put the fear of god into elon musk and bill gates and stephen hawking and these other guys who think that uh, ai is one day going to enslave us all and that's also part of his argument uh, that we may already be enslaved in a simulation. He's going to explain exactly why he thinks the universe is a simulation. So after a short break, let's talk to him about it. you quickly explain what simulation theory is? Yeah, I'm not sure there is a theory yet. Um, the simulation hypothesis... Ah, yes, hypothesis, we're sorry. Living, uh, it's that we're literally living in a computer simulation. And the simulation argument is an argument that tries to show that one of three propositions is true. Well, it doesn't tell us which one. And one of those is that we are in a computer simulation. Uh, the other two is that there is a strong convergence among all advanced civilizations such that they all lose interest 
in creating ancestry simulations. And the final alternative is that uh, almost all civilizations at our stage of development go extinct before reaching technological maturity. Right. So what can uh, our own uh, simulations tell us about this hypothesis? I mean, we can create simulated worlds. We can't necessarily create simulated intelligence yet to the level necessary. But um, in theory, we could create an entire civilization and or universe, couldn't we? In theory, yeah. I mean, I think with uh, greater capabilities, such as might be attained in the future, particularly after the development of machine superintelligence, I think ancestor simulations become technically feasible. So these would be simulations where um, some of the simulated uh, creatures and beings are conscious and have subjective awareness. And that they might have experiences in those virtual reality simulations uh, that are indistinguishable from the experiences we have in uh, what we... uh, normally take to be immediate physical reality. Um, I'm not sure though how much hmm, how much we how many lessons we can learn from our current simulations. Uh, we uh, are obviously quite far from being able to create these kinds of ancestor simulations or simulations with sentient minds in them at the moment. So in, in your hypothesis, um, it's, it's an ancestor simulation where uh, humans have essentially, through our own technological capabilities, become something else. And we're simulating what we were like, you know, millions or billions of years ago. I mean, is it possible that it, we are a simulation of, of something entirely different and it's not, you know, an yeah. ancestor sort of situation? Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's uh, also very much... Um, in, in, in the in the realm of possibility here. And uh, you, you could kind of distinguish simulations that are meant to be as close to reality as possible, whether it's the reality uh, of the history of the civilization during the simulating or whether it's as close to reality of some other civilization that the simulating civilization think might exist elsewhere in the universe. And distinguish that from simulations that are not meant to have bear any close resemblance to the way things were. Like, you could just imagine fantasy simulations or, or like, all kinds of other simulations that, that are not designed to mimic the underlying physical reality at all. Right. So in, in this hypothesis, is there one reality? Um, I guess we have no way of knowing, right? Well, it depends a little on how you define reality. If you define reality as everything that exists, then uh, by definition, there's kind of only one since... If there were another reality that also consisted of existing thing, it would be part of the first reality. Um, but there might be different levels of reality. There might be a lot of different simulations. There might be different civilizations, each running a lot of different simulations. And in some sense, these would be different realms, in as much as they might each have their own apparent laws of physics. They might be um, they might be causally disconnected from one another. Uh, but they would all be real. So in that sense, that would be part of reality. True, true. So you proposed this back in 2003. Um, how was it initially received and how has that changed You know, over the last 12 years? Um, well, initially there was a lot of uh, interest in this, um, both among the wider public, uh, I mean, especially among the wider public, I mean, to some extent also among sort of philosophy people and I guess I have a vague sense. I don't really have any concrete evidence, but it seems to me that a lot of the... So many people initially might have been more interested in it as, ah, there's this peculiar thought experiment, a paradox, if you want. Like this argument that sounds... It looks really watertight, but yet there must be something wrong with it. And it's kind of a funky thing. Maybe uh, there is a greater propensity, at least among some groups today, to actually take the simulation hypothesis seriously as something that might be true. Uh, not just as a kind of a paradoxical philosophical conclusion, but ah, this. Hmm, I wonder if that's actually the way things are. Um, that, that, that's my subjective impression. Right. So, if this is the way things are, are there ways of testing it, and are there people who are trying to prove whether this is true or not? I, I don't think it's like very easy to test it. There certainly are possible observations that could be made, such that if they were made would give us strong evidence for or against. So it's not that it's a hypothesis without any observational 
consequences. For example, to take the most extreme case, imagine if you observe a window popping up in front of you, like hovering in the air, saying you are in a simulation, take care for more information. Like So some observation like that would obviously be strong evidence in favor. And maybe more realistically, if we find ourselves moving closer and closer to the point where we ourselves are able to create uh, simulations, uh, then that would reduce the probability of the other two alternative hypotheses. The hypothesis that all civilizations go extinct before reaching technological maturity. Uh, that would be less probable the, the, the more it looked like we ourselves would make it through to technological maturity. And uh, the second alternative, that is this convergence where all advanced civilizations lose interest in creating simulations, that would also become less probable if, if we ourselves maintained that interest as we moved closer. And so if we're moving along that track, that would gradually increase the probability of the simulation hypothesis. Um, there might also be more subtle things that we could do right now to test it, uh, although I think probably they would give us weak clues for or against. There have been some physicists who have been kind of thinking that there would be some stuff you could do to, to test this, but I'm skeptical in as much as um, it would be possible for a, an advanced simulator to kind of fake some of the laws of physics and fake some of the even observational evidence that we could have. So that even if it looks like, for example, if, if we thought that the best physical theory describing our world was one which in, involved physical phenomena that, that were very computationally expensive to simulate, doesn't necessarily mean that this physics in our simulation actually is like that. It, it, you could imagine scenarios in which it, it would just be arranged to give us the appearance that the laws of physics were such as to give the impression that it would be a universe hard to simulate. Right. So, yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, if if we are indeed a simulation, does that say anything about, you know, the laws of physics or any sort of weirdness we find um, in in space or like, say, in a in a particle collider? Is that is that th are those the kind of tests that are being done? Like, oh, this this isn't behaving according to the laws of physics. Perhaps, you know, this is a flaw in the simulation or perhaps the rules have changed. I guess if we detected such anomalies, it, depending on exactly what they were, that uh, in, in some scenarios maybe that would be evidence for the simulation hypothesis. But I don't think I, I don't expect that we will detect such anomalies. Right. And the simulation hypothesis doesn't really strongly predict that we will do so either. I figure that any uh, civilization capable enough to actually create an ancestor simulation in the first place would also be capable of papering over any flaws in the simulation uh, that that we primitive, limited creatures in the simulation were able to detect. Like, they, I imagine the simulators would be super intelligent to start with. Right. And so a super intelligent simulator that has complete control of the world, uh, it should be pretty easy for it to conceal any cracks in the simulation. Or even if we did detect something, to kind of erase the memory of that or to paper. So if, if they didn't want us to have the impression that we lived in a buggy simulation, I think they could avoid giving us that impression. Right, right. And uh, I suppose this is probably pretty mind-blowing stuff for people once they initially hear it. Um, you're, you're a philosopher. What Does it matter if we're living in a sim simulation or what should the layperson take away from you know, a hypothesis like this? Well, it seems pretty important, um, given that it if true, would completely change our view about sort of the structure of our reality, but not just in the sense that discovering that, you know, underneath the electron there are strings or underneath the strings there is some other thing. Like, in a sense, it's more important than that because it also opens up the possibility of different things happening to us in the future. So to take an obvious thing, uh, like we don't believe physical existence could just pop out of being suddenly for no reason. I mean, there are all these kind of conservation laws in physics that, that say that the universe can't just suddenly cease to exist. But uh, if we're in a simulation and somebody switched it off, then that would kind of be the end of our world, right? Uh, right. Possibilities of afterlife. The, so there's, there's a whole host of scenarios that might seem very improbable if we're not in a simulation that, that suddenly seems like more realistic, conditional on the simulation hypothesis being true. So... So it does look very important. Now, that being said, 
it's not very easy or obvious exactly how it would affect the choices we should make. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that still. And I'm Right. I guess that's more of a sort of existential and philosophical question. If, if we learn we're all bits of code or something like that, uh, does it make you know, our interactions any less meaningful to us? Yes. So if, if you knew which kind of simulation or what the motives of the simulators were, then it's possible that immediately a lot of practical implications would follow from that. However, if all we know is that it's a simulation and we are very clueless about what kind or why, this particular simulation was created, then it's also harder to figure out what practical effect that should have on our behavior. It seems likely that there are practical hmm, implications, but at the moment, I think we still need to uh, acknowledge a great deal of uncertainty as to exactly what those are. Right, and, right. Um, I'll, I'll let you go in a second, but uh, do you think that we're living in a simulation? I mean, the more I you kind of read about it... I uh, tend to dodge the question if, if people ask <laughs> What probability do you assign? Um, so I have I have tended not to. Um, I mean, I, I do think like not, not a non-trivial. I mean, as I said <clears throat> back in the original paper, that I think each of these three alternatives should be assigned a non-trivial probability. But exactly how to apportion it between those three, um, I have I kind of tended to be a little bit vague about that uh, for various reasons. Right. Is that vagueness out of uh, simply there's no way of knowing or it's you just don't want to, to discuss it? Um, I guess both, really. I mean, it's um, there is a kind of, if I said some particular number, like the, this is the probability that I think it's, uh, and then some number, uh, I, I think it would give maybe an impression of a, a misleading sense of precision. Like it's not possible given our current knowledge to, to like calculate a precise number that is the probability. Um, and I think that number would maybe then be taken out of context, et cetera. And so I, I feel that maybe more um, confusion would be created as a result of that than, than from using vaguer language. Right, right. That's a very good point. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and um, we will talk to you soon, hopefully. Right, okay, cool. All right, have a good one. Yes, bye-bye. All right, bye. So this universe probably isn't a simulation because I get tired all the time and I have to sleep on a mattress and I actually just got a brand new mattress from Casper who is the sponsor of our podcast. Uh, you can go head to casper.com and plug in the code VICE for $50 off any mattress. Chris, how is your mattress? Um, I got my last mattress when the Iraq war started and I've had it ever since. It's seen better days and uh, I'm thinking about I need a new one badly and I'm quite jealous of you for having uh your new mattress there yeah this is Fancy, a this man. is a rather new purchase for me um i was on a craigslist mattress and i my back was actually hurting very badly and the first day i had this casper i sl i overslept for the first time in months it's very cool uh to sleep on something that doesn't feel like a bunch of springs so uh, if you're in a, any sort of similar situation, you can try it out for 100 days risk-free. Uh, you can return it if you don't like it. It's casper.com. Uh, and they send it to you in a very small little box, and it, it like expands itself. It's very impressive. And if you don't feel like driving somewhere and sh like taping a mattress to the hood of your car, you should probably look into this. So you heard me mention that maybe the universe is not a simulation, but it's a hologram, which is an entirely different theory and one that can actually be tested by science. And it's something that they're actually trying to do at Fermilab, which is a Department of Energy lab over near Chicago. Um, I also spoke to Craig Hogan, who is running that experiment. And we're going to have our minds blown right now because this is some of the craziest stuff I've ever heard.
Um, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about your work uh, at the Holometer and what you found so far and uh, what the, the goal of the experiment is. Okay. Um, from, from what I understand, you're basically trying to figure out whether or not um, space-time moves in waves as opposed to points. Is that an oversimplification? Well, that's, a good, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, that is quantum mechanics, which is the standard matter of all of matter and energy. That's true, right? I mean, that is, there's a, states can have a particle character or a wave character. There's this complementary principle. That's a property of matter and energy. But we've never figured out how that could work through space and time itself. So that the, the, the property, so space time is what we call classical. In, in other words, it is just made out of points and lines. It's exactly defined. There's no ambiguity in it. There's no, Heisenberg type uncertainty. And so, and that's the part that, that's the wave part of it that we captured in that description. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's possible that there is this ambiguity with what we see in the world around us or, or no? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and so people don't know, physicists don't know how this works, right? So that the certain, the things that we know about physics that are really experimentally verified um, so far haven't, shed any light on this. It's all in theory space. And in a way, that's good because it means that the standard physics, which, which doesn't explain quantum nature of space-time, does fine for all the experiments we have. So all the stuff at CERN and all that um, really doesn't care about this. Um, and so what we've done is we've tried to design an experiment which will care about it, but it might be sensitive to those types of effects. So um, can you explain how the experiment itself works? How, how would we know if we if the world is a hologram, I guess. Yeah, so uh, it, the, uh, the basic technique, the basic idea is something that's actually quite old. It was a, a machine invented by Albert Michelson in the 19th century. It's called the Michelson interferometer. And what you basically do is you, uh, you shine light between mirrors. The mirrors are far apart. We use lasers, of course, you know, fancy light, fancy mirrors. And um, by using the wave nature of the light, not of the space-time, but of the light, um, you can measure the relative positions of the mirrors very accurately. And that way, um, as the mirrors move through time, and you can monitor their positions with the light, um, if there's this quantum property to it, the decoherence of the quantum property of space-time, we can see that in the light signal that comes out of the interferometer. So we have, we have a couple of these interferometers. We have fast electronics to read the light signals out of them. We use that as a, as a kind of very, very sensitive pair of microphones to listen for the jitteriness or uncertain, uncertainty of the space-time. Right. So if we find this jitteriness, what does that mean? It means that the space and time aren't infinitely divisible. They're, they're not a continuum. It's, it's not like, you know, you couldn't just divide the line into smaller and smaller points forever, but you eventually get to the place where um, it's sort of like atoms, it becomes indivisible. There, there's, a, there's a kind of a unit. But this, in this case, it's a unit. I wouldn't even say it's a unit of space-time. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental element of something that looks like space-time when you have a lot of it, you have a big system. But when you dig down to some microscopic level, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a quantum system. So we'd be finding ele- you know, signs of those fundamental elements. So would that suggest that there are more dimensions to the universe or that the universe can be explained with just two or the, the observable well, universe? It would, it would suggest that um, there may be more dimensions, but it tells you that the amount of information is consistent with having just, just two, or the equivalent of just two, which is like saying that the third dimension of space, um, the fact that it appears three-dimensional in a way isn't, a necessary property of it. It doesn't. It doesn't have as much information as uh, an infinitely divisible three-dimensional space does. It has a lot of information as a as a two-dimensional space, which is actually pixelated at some fundamental level. Right. So, uh, also on this show, we're going to talk about uh, the universe as a simulation, as a hypothesis, which yeah. is a very philosophical sort of thing. But this is something that you're testing right now, right? I mean, this is. Yeah, in a way, that's right. We're, we're, we're the, um, you could think of this as a kind of a bandwidth limit to reality. I mean, sort of reality is unfolding 
but it's it's not a it's, it's not a download at infinite bandwidth. There's, an, there's a finite amount of total data, and the and the the, uh, the data rate that we're sensitive to is about ten to the forty three hertz. It's this inverse of the Planck time, and so um, so far that's such an enormous rate that it's for practical purposes almost infinite. I and mean, we haven't noticed any sign of that. The word. We're designing this experiment to try to see signs of it. Right. So um, how far along are you in this experiment? Because as I understand, it started up last summer, right? Yeah. We, we, so we built it, and it's been running. And it runs pretty well. We had a, uh, our first science results just came out. And it's not those are not yet at this playing sensitivity level. So we wouldn't have expected to see the granularity of space-time. But um, we have... We have been able to do the best, the world's best limits uh, on vibrations of space, like gravitational waves at high frequencies. We're, we're, we're collecting data at megahertz frequencies, so um, we didn't find any. And that what that means is that we can say some things that aren't there, certain kinds of exotic sources of vibrations, like maybe intra-black hole binaries or cosmic strings. We didn't really expect them, but anyway, we can say for sure they're not there. Either. Right. Which yeah. Sense. So um, when, when do you expect to get onto the Planck uh, scale? Well, we're doing that now. You know, it's a very, um, you might imagine, you know, it's the, the, the level, it's a very demanding experiment. The, 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 the amount by which the mirrors are moving. Uh, we're doing this timing at 100 million times per second. The actual speed of the motion is, um, it's about 100 times slower than continental drift. Oh, wow. Because they're only moving by about, a centimeter per century or so. So it, it's, it's the amount of motion is a billion times smaller than an atom. So it's a really subtle effect. So um, suppose you find findings that suggest the universe is a hologram. What changes as far as physics goes? I mean, is it is it a landmark discovery that changes you know everything we know about the universe, or is, <laughs> does this does this fit with what we know about you know? Yeah, so, it, so it's funny because in some ways it wouldn't change anything because, like I said, it doesn't affect. We would have noticed it already if we were affecting any of the other physics that people are doing at CERN or anything. On the other hand, it, it is a landmark in con- conceptual, a conceptual land. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, you know, so ever since forever, really, you know, since you know two thousand years ago, we've had these concepts of geometry like Euclid, um, which are made out of lines and points. And we've never had any experimental reason to suspect that real space isn't like that. So this would be for the first time actually saying, no, actually, that space isn't like that. It's actually a quantum system like matter. So in that sense, it would really be a landmark. And I don't know whether uh, the hope, right, is that you know having that experimental result would help us actually des- design a theory. We don't have a theory for this, mm-hmm. but actually, it would. You know, and this has happened before. You know when he, People found uh, experimental results that pointed us in the direction. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...quantum mechanics to begin with. When people found spectral lines and atoms, it was the experiments that told the theories that they had to invent quantum theory. Mm-hmm. It would be like that here. Having this experimental result would help you know, shape what the theory has to explain. So it would potentially open up an entirely new field of physics. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's right. right. I- Is that clear if we don't find anything it's not clear what the implication would be is that your next question maybe i mean it could so it's quite possible that we just find we don't find any new effect what we find is consistent with us you know continuous space time that i think that is also interesting and but in a different way and i think in that case uh the importance of the experiment would be clear right away mm-hmm. so an example of that would be well the best example the one we hope for would be it would be like um the Michelson-Morley experiment, which is Michelson's first use of this, which, you know, was a null result. They did not find what they were looking for. They were, they were looking for 
the motion of the Earth through space with a interferometer, and it doesn't exist. They, so which is why they didn't find anything. But people, it took them about 20 years to figure out why they didn't see anything. And it, was, it led to Einstein's theory of relativity. It was a very important result, but it, it really wasn't appreciated at first what the significance of the result was. So it could be like that uh, So if we get a null result. Right. Uh, so what led you to start looking for this? Like, is there um, is there a hole in physics that... You know, this this isn't explained, so there must be something. Like, what led you to to originally suggest yeah, that perhaps this might be the case? Yeah, in a way, that's that's two different questions. So, I, so in, in, yes, there is a hole. There's there's this this gap. There's actually a big gap that's been people have been aware of for almost a hundred years between Einstein's theory of relativity and space time on the one hand, and quantum mechanics on the other hand. And you know, there were. Um, Really interesting debates back in the 1920s, 1930s, especially between Einstein, Bohr, and Hubel. Because those two theories actually, at some level, are just incompatible. They live in different worlds. Modern physics has found ways to combine them, but they haven't really made them compatible. They don't have a quantum theory of space. So, so that's, that's the opportunity. There's that, there is that gap to address. As far as what led me into it, it was that, you know, there are some theory results which are fascinating. Um, most of them grew out of black hole physics over the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people have... There's evidence in the physics of black holes that there is this holographic bound information. Black holes are a three-dimensional object. But um, theory suggests very strongly that they, are, they have a two-dimensional amount of information. Even though three, they're three-dimensional space, all the information of the black hole fits on a two-dimensional surface of Planck resolution. So that is, you know, that is a kind of crazy result that's hanging out there that people don't really know how to reconcile with standard physics. And so that's, um, there's been a lot of theory about that. We don't have any experiments about it. Right. So that was really the motivation to figure out, what well, can we do? Is there any experiment we can do that might shed light on. Right. Can you describe for us what the holometer looks like? Because as I understand it, you guys operate out of a trailer in, you know, Yeah, I, I've Chicago. read that somewhere. Yeah, somebody said it's in a trailer. It's not in a trailer. The, um, the control room is in a trailer. Ah. <laughs> Which is not uncommon at Fermilab, right? I mean, well, the experiment itself is um, part of it's in a tunnel in one of the Fermilab beam lines and partly um, sticking out into a prairie. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so I think so, on our holometer website, you can find pictures. There's, uh, you know, I don't know, somebody said that the internet is a series of tubes, right? And that, that's what <laughs> the holometer is a series of tubes. Right. It's, it's, it's um, with mirrors in it. There's, there's a, a, a series of 40-meter, uh, 6-inch diameter vacuum tubes with nothing in them, vacuum tubes. So it's just empty space, uh, except for laser beams. And the laser beams are shining down these 30-meter, 40-meter tubes between very precise mirrors that are also in the vacuum. The mirrors are amazing. So actually, one of them in each of the devices is uh, not a mirror, but an actual piece of glass with a mirror on it. The light has to go through a piece of glass a centimeter thick. It only absorbs a part per million of the light. It's, oh, wow. It's an amazing... Yeah, I mean, all this technology we borrowed from the gravitational wave world there. So it's basically an invisible piece of matter. Like it's, you know, it's like it's supposed to right through it. And then all, everything that Everything that doesn't reflect all of it goes through. It's the way, I guess, the way to put it. Um, anyway, so is, there's that, and then there's a bunch of um, computers, of course, to keep all this stuff aligned. Because it's, uh, it's more or less just bolted to the ground. It's kind of anchored in concrete pilings. But we have to have little electronic wigglers to, uh, well, to keep it locked, as you say. So mm-hmm. The mirrors don't wander all over the place. They're held to a precision smaller than an atom so that we can detect the fast vibrations, which are a billion times smaller than that. Right. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, this is an extremely precise uh, sort of experiment. Um, what are the potential like places where noise could come in there or what sorts of uh, obstacles are you dealing with in you know, getting an accurate result? Yeah, so well, there's a whole series of them, right? So, um, so it's all, and a lot of it is to do with frequency dependence. So we're, 
we're measuring a signal that we're after at high frequencies. It's a megahertz experiment, so it's like AM radio. So it's a million, over between 1 and 10 million times per second oscillations. Most of the noise in the environment that shakes stuff is at really low frequencies. It's, it's an audible band. It's like a, a kilohertz and below, mm-hmm. or 10 kilohertz and below, something like that. And, and that, um, we certainly see that. I mean, this is a very sensitive microphone. Again, like the gravitational wave observatories. So it, it, even with, it just immediately after we built it, we could immediately detect the vibrations in the ground from um, ocean wave surf on the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, thousands of miles away. That's the same as the LIGO detectors. They also detect that. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a very low frequency thing. That's the, the lower hertz. At, at the high frequencies, almost nothing shakes. So the only the only thing we can actually detect that is not supposed to well that isn't our signal. Or well, there's a few um, there's a few radio stations we can pick out as shielding from that. And there's a really interesting effect, which is very subtle, which is that um, the mirrors themselves are sitting there at room temperature, and it's an unavoidable property of anything is that you know the molecules move around. Mm-hmm. And so the whole mirror shakes a tiny bit with the same energy as a single molecule. Very small amount of energy. But we actually detect that. Right. So you're picking up a bunch of noise, but you're able to filter it out when you... Yeah. yeah. Um, we understand. We also, since we're correlating the two, that's a very powerful way to get rid of things we don't want. Right. As I understand it, there are other groups around the world working on this theory, or at least on the holographic universe theory. Um, do you keep in touch with them, or do you know how their work differs from yours? Well, there aren't any other experiments. Here. So that is, it's a unique experiment. The, um, on the theory side, um, the, the theory uh, is pretty active theory. Most of it is, um, is built around either string theory or things like that. So they're, they're, they're addressing things that happen at very small scales. They're really worried about the consistency of the theory. And that's really about microscopic scale. So there isn't very much known about how it works for macroscopic objects like mirrors. Right. So, so there's not a, there really isn't any theoretical consensus about what we should see. So, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, the theorists, you know, that I talked to, a lot of them say, that, well, they're really interested in the result of the experiment. But very few of them would say they know what we should see. Yeah, there aren't, there's not a literature about expectations, I think. Right. So if uh, if the universe is indeed a hologram, you will be the first to know? <laughs> well, I guess so. I mean, if, if we don't see a result, that doesn't say the universe isn't a hologram. Right. It just says that it's not a hologram in this way. We could still have finite information and so on. But it's not... A, we're looking for sort of the most obvious way that it could be blurring the positions of these massive bodies. But it, um, but if, if we do see the result, then that you know, we're looking for, then then it, it it is it will be, I think it'll be a big surprise to everybody, including us. Right. Do you do you know when uh, you expect to get results back? Uh, uh, well, I hope this summer or fall. It's, it's working well enough to. to well, summer. if you do get results back, please call me second. <laughs> you, well, I think what? you'll hear about it pretty quickly. We'll be out there. If if it if you find what you are looking for, how do you think people will respond? Well, you know, it's um. There's many many examples of uh, fundamental physics breakthroughs, transforming society, and it can be like you know, and I you know you can make a list better than I can. I mean, but you know, if you, if you learn about how space and time works, that's that's really useful. So an example of how that's been useful in the past is, you know, that very esoteric theory of Einstein, general theory of relativity. Everybody has their cell phone. This GPS relies on, you know. So, and similarly, if we're out there and we find a bandwidth limit to reality, uh, that's important for how we live. You know, nature's internet service is going to matter at some point. Usually, I mean, the more the more fundamental. It, 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 it is the longer it takes to, to translate into technology. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow. I mean, the, the transistor was invented 
60 years ago, something 70 years ago or something like that. And, uh, but you know, and so it takes a while, but now, now it really, you know, that has really mattered a lot. It's completely, everything is different now because of that. As a scientist, is it weird working on something that may not translate for, you know, 50, 60, 100 years? Well, we take the long view, right? I mean, uh, gosh, you know, the, we could be like Galileo or Newton. That'd be great. That would be you know, great. <laughs> or, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not that unusual. I mean, there's a lot of areas of fundamental science. Sometimes it's called curiosity building research. Mm-hmm. More than just curiosity. You know, it, because the, um, you know, you can't make fundamental advances in technology and engineering without making fundamental advances in physics. I mean, it's part of, you know, building a civilization. The future is to figure out how the world works. And, you know, and it's an actually an iterated thing. You know, so I would say we couldn't have built this experiment as cheaply as we did 10 years ago because we're relying on fast electronics, we're relying on photonics technology you can buy catalogs on the internet uh, to build it, you know. So the fact, you know, that so that if we manage to detect something, that automatically means that it's, you know, there's a machine that can detect it, which means there's at least another machine that can use it. It's right. part of, it is part of our technology. It's something that we uh, now have command over. We didn't before. Command over nature at, you know, that incredibly small scale incredible fine scale of motion uh, is is going to be important. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking. I know you're crazy busy. Um, these yeah. these experiments are awesome. I, I would love to keep following them. So thank you so hey, much. Nice. Have okay. a good weekend. Okay. Bye. So that's some pretty crazy stuff. I've been running a way less intensive experiment wherein I just think that stuff isn't real all the time. And apparently there's a whole subreddit for this that Chris is a huge fan of. So tell us about r slash glitch in the matrix. Yeah, so there's a subreddit called glitch in the matrix that uh, I was introduced to by motherboard staff writer and host extraordinaire Brian Anderson. Features um, editor. Sorry, features editor. <laughs> I was trying to make up for that lack of uh, knowledge with the... Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, so on this subreddit, people, ex- they basically tell stories where they had experiences where something very strange happened in their day-to-day lives uh, that they refer to as a glitch in the matrix, which is obviously a reference to uh, the seminal... Seminal's not the right word, but... The sci-fi film, The Matrix. Very important. Very important film, The Matrix, um, where I think it was Neo, in one of his earlier adventures, uh, sees a cat walk by twice, the same cat. And he says deja vu, and everyone freaks out, and they're like, it's a glitch in The Matrix. It means something fucking crazy is going to happen. And then the agents come in, and they shoot him in that house. They change the windows to bricks. Yeah, exactly. So, right, that's exactly, yeah. So, um Anyway, so people tell stories like this, um, and they range from... So this would be like, what, like seeing a Starbucks next to another Starbucks? Uh, that's the thing. So there's it's kind of a loose interpretation, because you would think it would just be like deja vu stories, but it kind of runs the gamut. Like, there's like shit like that, and then some people are clearly just lying and just telling stories and using it as a, a like a, a writing prompt. This morning on the way to work, I saw a man with a horse on the street on North 13th. This really happened? Two blocks from the vice office. This really happened. It was not a police horse. It was just a dude with a black horse. And I thought, is reality falling apart? I feel like New York... We're in Brooklyn. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's exactly the point. I feel like New York is fucking off limits to this entire discussion. Because you see weird shit all the time. And especially after you've lived here for a while, you just go... Eh, and you keep walking, you know? <laughs> Which so, is what I did, yeah. Right, you're like, horse, fuck this horse, like, moving on, you know? Um, but I think, uh, I don't know, for me, I, I still just go back to the old faithful, the deja vu stuff. Like, the other day, um, I was talking to another uh, video editor here uh, in one of the editing rooms in an AP, and what they were saying was exactly like I'd experienced it before. Mm-hmm. and everything about what was on the screens in the room. And whenever this happens to me, I always go like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta, I can't 
I can't. I get this like run feeling, like run because something bad is about to happen. I have no idea why, but deja vu always makes me feel like that. I get very panicky and I gotta go somewhere else where the where the event is not happening. The event in question. Okay, I just remembered a good one. My boyfriend's brother was visiting from L.A. and he walked into a coffee shop. We, we all walked into a coffee shop, and he does a double take because the barista behind the counter is the same barista as his coffee shop at home. She had moved to New York and gotten a new job at a coffee shop. But I couldn't imagine like how crazy disorienting that would be. That's a pretty good one. I've never heard anything like that. <laughs> it was really good. I just think that real like do you ever get on the subway and see all these people coexisting like happily or at least peacefully and think like who let all these human beings hang out together by themselves unsupervised? And I just see, I just like I'm out in public sometimes and I'm like, this is crazy. This is like very unsafe for me. Like the safest thing for me to do would be to lock myself inside and like turn out all the lights and never go outside ever again because there's people out there and there's cars and there's like (laughs) birds everywhere. There's just things happening constantly. And I think this might be completely insane, but reality is like a very dangerous place if you think about it. And so you'd rather be in a simulation? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't rather be in a simulation. And this only happens to me sometimes. And I don't really like, I don't get panicky or like scared. I just think that it's crazy. Like, where are our pa- parents? Like, I'm not an adult. <laughs> like, where are the old people who are taking care of me? And I think that may be like some sort of uh, very privileged, like millennial. Jason just had sort a 27th birthday. Yeah, but... <laughs> Just think about it sometimes. Like you get on an airplane and there's just like 50 people in there, more than 50 people, and they just sit there still and like don't talk to each other and everything is fine. Well. Most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, there's some events that have happened recently that would suggest it's not all so well held together. And even if it is just somebody like losing their mind like on a plane, it it does happen, you know, like – I, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, yeah, I don't know, a, a simulation, uh, you're saying like a simulation would be preferable because you'd be safe at all times? I'm not really saying that. It's just the, it's the times that I think most often about reality. I'm just like, this is really weird. Like I'm alive right now amongst all of these strangers. Who are they? Like, what are they doing? And what's going on right now? Why am I here? Are you saying, like, their autonomy is dangerous? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, it. I mean, it is dangerous. And I, I, I always think about this when I'm on my bike because that's kind of when you can get hit by a truck and it's all over. Like, I definitely trust myself to not walk in the middle of the street and get hit by something. But, uh, you know, I could hit a pothole on my bike and get run over by something. And that alters the course of my reality forever even if it didn't have like a big impact on like the simulation. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it it is, it's almost like those people in roller coaster tycoon where you just drop them in the middle of like an ocean and they die. And the, like the number of guests at your park goes down by one. (laughs) Like that's basically what happens when a human being gets crushed by like a bus uh, most of the time. And sometimes like the world keeps going on without you. And you just respawn. Maybe you do. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, who knows, man? Reincarnation? Yeah. I don't know. Probably not real. Right. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that this is not, that this is glitch in the matrix material or just my like existential crisis, but. I think it's related. It's like moments in life when you feel so disoriented or you lose reality for a second and you realize that it could, I I don't know what kind of drugs the listeners have done, but. You can get this all experience. Of the drugs. You can get this experience, you know, pretty easily where you all of a sudden you're like, wow, you know, my perception can change radically and everything seems different and I'm not sure of anything. And it's like freeing and terrifying. I think that the well, the the thing that you're kind of referencing is an anxiety that I maybe had before I lived in cities. So I used to, I grew up in a rural town and then I uh, went to school in a college town and then was there for a few years and then I moved to a city and then I moved to New York. And I noticed that I I did have this kind of similar anxiety 
But then once I was in like a place as batshit crazy as New York, like the the craziness of everything happening around and the relative insignificance of me as a person was like super comforting. And it I it's like one of the reasons that I learned to like love living in this place because any anxiety you had just went away because I don't know, it just it seemed irrelevant like from the day to day. I will say, despite what I just said, I like kind of relish the chaos of New York for that very reason. It's like you can basically do whatever you want. And as long as you're not like actively killing someone, people are going to leave you alone. So you can just like exist and do whatever you want. You can bring your horse out and ride down the street and no one cares. Adrian just keeps walking to work and like (laughs) references you on a podcast weeks later and no one cares. That was this morning. Oh, hours later. Or was it weeks earlier, twice? (laughs) (laughs) If it happens to me again tomorrow morning, I'm going to, we have to re-record. We'll interview the, we'll interview the horse man. (laughs) We'll interview the horse man. Let's interview the horse. There's a story that brought that horse to you on May 5th. Maybe it was a Cinco de Mayo horse. Could it? it We're recording this on May 5th. Oh, for right. those of you oh, listening sorry. to it in alternate I forgot realities. About time. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot that this isn't yeah. live. Um, the other thing that like also makes me feel kind of insignificant or and or crazy is when you travel abroad and go to another city and see people just like going to the bank or <laughs> sitting in a park. Or the crazy stuff they have at 7-Eleven. Yeah, or the crazy stuff they have in 7-Eleven and that's their like everyday reality. And it's like... Right now, someone in Spain is like at Home Depot, not Home Depot, because I haven't seen Home Depot in Spain, but a similar home improvement store doing like the most boring thing. And when you're there, you can kind of imagine your home. But like when you're at home, you don't think like, oh, my God, all these other cities are doing the exact same thing that you're doing, just like subsisting. Yeah. But that, but that's, but that's awesome. I mean, that's no, kind that's of great. it's like a wonderful <laughs> feeling, like to see. Per, plus, you're on vacation and you don't have to do boring shit while you're on vacation. So you're like, ah, man, I'm, I'm, not, I don't have to go to Home Depot right now. But uh, one thing that just occurred to me was um, there's a documentary called The City Dark um, about light pollution, and it's really interesting. I suggest everybody watches it. But one of the points made in that film is that, um, so I don't know what y'all know about light pollution exactly. I didn't know anything before I saw this, but for anyone who lives in New York or any major city, um, there's so many lights in the city, basically, that it it forms a dome, a constant dome of light at night. So when you're in New York or even say Boston, you can't really see the stars above you because the light is is such that it's collected above the city and that's why the city never really gets dark. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the just tons of street lights that aren't like downward facing. They're just going up and out into the night and it's what creates this kind of glow. And there was uh, some kind of philosopher, psychologist, theorist. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I believe it's on Netflix, so go watch it if you're interested. But this person has a theory that the reason people in cities are kind of crazy and the reason time moves so much faster or appears to is because we can't see the stars, which makes us lose a grasp of our uh, insignificance and place in the universe and time passing. And I I always thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I had this theory about living on the coast. Like if you live near an ocean, it reminds you of your own place in the universe and gives you some perspective whereas living in the middle of the country because the ocean is so gigantic right yeah the ocean is so big just (laughs) it's amazing but maybe the people who live on the coast which is where most of the cities are are seeing the ocean and getting their perspective and people in the middle of the country are seeing the stars and getting their perspective so it all evens out everybody's crazy so it just boils down to just people in cities who are crazy yeah everybody's nuts yeah so why didn't they build us? Why didn't they? Why isn't there <laughs> they, he, whatever? Why isn't there a more perfectness to this world where we're all not crazy and like missing things or not seeing things? I think you just convinced me that a simulation is a better idea. But maybe this is a simulation and it's just like our random, you know, stamina it's like points. Like version our version 0.8. 
Yeah, it's like a creative character. Do you ever think that like when we were born, there was some sort of creative character thing where you get a certain number of like intelligence and like looks like not crazy like it's diseases, etc. Yeah, another kind of simulation. similar to D and D, but more similar to like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Three. <laughs> oh, <laughs> where you okay. can like run so, like the cool D and D with skateboarders. <laughs> exactly like that. I don't know. Just think about it sometime. Was there a creative create player for every human? Is there a creative player in this simulation that we call existence? Maybe. If you were a religious person, why wouldn't the simulation thing appeal to you? Because you do live in a simulation. And religious specifically with regard to a creator, God or whatever, Um who created this world and then that is a simulation like it by nature like isn't that exactly what that kind of creationist thing implies well you asking that makes me feel like to quote the oracle from the matrix what's really (laughs) gonna bake your noodle is at what point is the simulation real enough to be called reality like if you have a god who makes a whole world and it all functions on its own and it's got form how is that why why is that real why is that less real or more real than something that wasn't created by a creator like is that really more real than if i made a simulated world in roller coaster tycoon that's my favorite part of the simulation hypothesis it's that we are certainly on our way to creating our own worlds we have our, these you know sim city characters obviously don't have free will as far as i know but we are moving towards a place where we can create artificial intelligence that is potentially conscious of itself and if we can entrap that into you know a box that we call a simulation it can then you know improve itself and create its own simulations and we just have like boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes which is kind of like men in black i believe yes i was (laughs) <laughs> or also, it's also similar to a Simpsons couch gag. But that's certainly what we're moving towards. And it's crazy. Like, who's to say that, you know, this the Sims that we create eventually are any, like, worse off than we are? Potentially, maybe they're having a better time than we are living at their sick pool houses. It's almost basically the question's, like, completely irrelevant because whatever reality is, it's reality, but it probably is some kind of constructed hell or whatever <laughs> like we live in. I I was just thinking of the Men in Black thing, too, because I completely forgot that that whole movie ends with like an alien playing marbles with like the entire universe and one of the marbles and how that's never revisited in any of the other Men in Black movies. Right. And that's uh, so both Nick Bostrom and Craig Hogan kind of asked them, what does this mean? And they were like, nothing really, you know, just a cool little thing that we're doing. And it doesn't really matter. This is the reality that we have. So I guess we can only do with it what we what we do. Yeah, it seems like a good spot to end. Yeah, Yeah. it's a stupid, stupid question to become obsessed with. (laughs) Right, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's fun. It's, it's fun to ponder. It it's is fun completely to ponder. useless. But if you can prove it, it's cool. <laughs> but then, if you prove it, well, actually, let's before we end. If you prove it, um, there's a lot of stories about this kind of uh, um, situation too, where like um, uh, towing Jehovah is the first one that pops into my head. But like where people are proven that there is no one driving the ship or that it is a reality then the next thing is like a insane revolution where morality goes out the window because who gives a fuck about morality but now we're getting into the conversation about whether morality is universal or relative or cultural anyway you open pandora's box man i feel like this is by far the deepest podcast we've had pondering such things as what are we i said at the top it was going to be heavy it's real heavy. Hopefully it was fun for you guys, though. If we had some kind of feedback mechanism for the listeners, I know you're out there. I would be curious if anyone would act differently if you found out that the world was a simulation. Yes, please, please, if you've made it this far, 
tweet at Adrian. It's at ADR Jeffries. <laughs> tweet at me. It's Jason underscore Kebler, K-O-E-B-L-E-R. You can also email us at editor at motherboard.tv. Um, we don't know if anyone is out there listening. So hopefully there yes, are. Yes, we do. Yeah, there are. We have stats on you. Nothing creepy though. Anyways, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, you can subscribe to us at soundcloud.com slash motherboard. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can subscribe to our newsletter, which is motherboard premium at motherboard.vice.com slash newsletter. Please, please, please think about buying a Casper mattress. I promise they're really good. You can check them out at casper.com and use code vice for $50 off of any order. Once again, I'm staff writer Jason Kebler, and I'm here with uh, Chris O'Coin, supervising producer, and Adrian Jeffries, managing editor. We were edited by Kevin Gibo this week. Thanks a lot, Kevin, and we'll see you next time.